This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Today we visit a mosque north of Denver. It is the latest stop in our series Breaking Bread, in which Coloradans who are really different politically try to find common ground over a meal. At our first gathering, not long after the election, there was this exchange between Annette Gonzalez of Pueblo, who voted for President Trump, and Green Party voter Mehdi Khan of Aurora. Mehdi is Muslim. I've never met a Muslim. I've never sat and talked to one. I haven't. You know, after the meal, Mehdi invited Annette to visit his mosque. She agreed if Mehdi returned the favor and attended her church. But Annette got cold feet. She was scared to visit a mosque, and her family was worried. That hurt Mehdi's feelings, but he held up his end of the bargain. Good morning, Adobe family. Mehdi and his wife Malia trekked down to Pueblo and attended Sunday services at Annette's church. Mehdi'd never been to church. Afterwards, around bagels and cream cheese, they hashed out their differences and identified some similarities. You can hear that conversation at cprnews.org. Most importantly, it ended with this. So it sounds like I need to go. We need to make another arrangement and I need to go. We're normal. To your mosque. And see what's going on. We have donuts after Friday prayer. We oh, don't have yeah. cookies. We have <laughs> I'm donuts. there. <laughs> you know, we're human beings. And that's why we're all here for Friday prayer at Masjid Iklas, the Metro Denver North Islamic Center. Let's meet the Imam. Hello, my name is Shamsuddin Ben Masood, and I've been Imam here for almost two years now. I'm a Colorado native. I was born in uh, Denver area and grew up in Aurora. He knew we were coming and was thrilled to welcome Annette, who's on her way from Pueblo. She got a little lost. There were other visitors, too, college kids from Regis University in Denver. It's part of the imam's concerted effort to explain Islam to non-Muslims and teach people about its deep ties to this country. The feeling that we get as Muslims in the States, you know, through the difficult times that we're in now, is that we are a... Um, a new scourge on the population, and that's actually not the case. We're saying that we're part and parcel of this country and the establishment and the building of this country from its founding fathers and prior to. Now, if you're thinking, I don't remember mentions of Muslims in my U.S. history class, you weren't getting the whole picture, according to the imam. Some of the slaves, he says, brought to the American colonies from West Africa were Muslim. Because of those roots, we are part of the fabric of, of this nation. Then our special guest, Annette Gonzalez, pulled up into the parking lot nice from Pueblo. <laughs> nice to see you, Annette. Welcome. Nice to see you. Thank you. I apologize for being late. No worries. That's okay. Who did you bring with you? This is my daughter, Angel. We divide up. The men go upstairs to the main prayer room. It's male only. And the women head to a separate room below, where the service is shown on a TV screen. Allahu Akbar Allahu Akbar, God is great. A phrase Christians will recognize, so will Jews in their prayer, the Shema. During his sermon, the imam talks about the 1.8 billion Muslims on earth and the small number who give the rest a bad name. There are individuals who are featured on the news more than the 1.8 billion Muslims. And that there are individuals that may go out and harm others, acting out of their own selves, but not out of the spirit and the message and the teachings of the Prophet Muhammad and of our Islamic faith, which is beautiful and dear to all of us. 
And sometimes these acts of violence and hate and anger and misguidance and jahiliyyah, ignorance, is what drowns out the spirit of Allahu Akbar that the 1.8 billion Muslims are saying. He also says there is a double standard when it comes to those who perpetrate violence in the name of religion. The KKK, when they burn crosses, acting to be Christ-like, and individuals who bomb abortion clinics, acting out of what they believe to be faith, or individuals who go to a camp in Norway, and they shoot up young kids in a camp, acting out of an ideology over faith, do not represent Christ just as much as these individuals who say Allahu Akbar do not represent Islam and do not represent Muslims and do not represent the Prophet Muhammad. After the service, Annette and her adult daughter join Mehdi and his wife in a conference room at the mosque to break bread. Sort of. That's a gigantic pizza. Annette, you said that if you were going to come to the mosque, you weren't going to tell your family because they were worried. I did. You did? did, But not until last night. (laughs) Were they freaking out? Path of least resistance. There was one holdout that, yeah, she wasn't going to let me go. She's going to hogtie me in my sleep. But I'm here. Still alive, still breathing. I came, yes. (laughs) What were your impressions? I was impressed by the beautiful women and the outfits and the variety of shades of brown and beautiful people and how friendly everybody is. And and the message was very similar to our Christian church. How so? Uh, In being united and, and loving one another and doing good and not being a terrorist. You know, I mean, a lot of people have the misconception that mosques are training terrorists, and maybe some are. But today, the impression I got was the good mosques are teaching their folks, you know, that that's other people that don't represent the rest of us. So I think the majority of the Muslims are kind and peace-loving folks. How does it feel to hear that, Mehdi? That feels great. I mean, that's what we're trying to convey. I mean, we're just like, we're as American as anybody else. Annette, you told us last time that you had grown up in a family that didn't embrace other faiths, including, like, Catholics. Right. Uh, Remind me what denomination it was. I was raised Southern Baptist. Southern Baptist, okay. What do you think your folks would think about you coming today? Well, I know my father would have been against it. He would have tried to talk me out of it. Um, But my mom's an open-minded person, so I think she'd be impressed. The next time there is an attack... And perhaps the person yells, Alu Akbar. Or the next time, perhaps the president talks about Muslims. Do you think you might interpret that differently now? Of course, because now there's a face on the Muslims. There's all the nice people that we've met here who took the time to talk to us. There's Mehdi and his wife who've taken time out of their lives to answer what might just be silly questions from <laughs> ignorant people. No question is silly. I mean, <laughs> the questions you might have, I bet majority of Americans also have, mm-hmm. you know, the majority of our country has not met a Muslim before. And being in like the construction industry, I, I've seen that a lot. People have told me, you're the first Muslim I've met. You right. Know? And how does that make you feel to have to represent a 1.7 it's a, it's billion It's a big people? responsibility, <laughs> yeah. really. We all have our different opinions and approaches to the same religion. You know, my yeah. approach is different 
different than everybody else, you know? Yeah. I appreciate your dedication to five prayers a day. Oh, thank you. Because you're, you're focused all day long, you know, where some people haven't cracked the Bible in probably 20 years. Well, you know, everything can become a routine, and I'll be sure. the first to say that, you know, it's not perfect. I mean, because it becomes a routine, and you say, okay, well, I have to do it, so I'll just do it as fast as I can. And, you know, in any religion, it's that way. So. Right. So what if you miss one of the prayers during the day? I make it up. You have to make it up. You have to make it up? Yeah, yeah. So is that allowed like when you're falling asleep if you're super tired? The, the, <laughs> the hardest is the morning one, which is uh, you have to do it before the sun rises. So you get up before dawn every morning? You're supposed to. And you're supposed to. Well, that's not an answer to the question. <laughs> you're do you? <laughs> no. <laughs> that's so you're Malia. making one up each day. <laughs> right. So when I wake okay. up, I make it up. And, you know, I okay. really should. I mean, God will hold you accountable and, you know. But, okay. and, you know, if you follow the prayers correctly, it really does organize your day, though. Yeah. You know, you're saying, okay, well, I'm supposed to get up at this time. So most folks, they'll get up at the dawn prayer and then they'll go to work. So you're going to work early so you can come right. back home early. Since we talked last, there's been a lot of very high-profile violence. You had the attack in New York. You had the attack at the Walmart in Thornton. You had the church attack in Texas. I wonder if things have been going through your mind related to breaking bread with these events in the news. What do you think, Matty? I mean, the situation in this country, it seems like things are at like a tipping point. I really get that feeling. And right now is the most crucial time where rhetoric needs to die down and the government needs to, the federal government, the president needs to pick and choose his words carefully and he needs to understand that divisiveness is the cause to what's happening. And he needs to say words that will bring us together rather than build walls between us. The the way he plays politics, it's divide and rule. So he'll appeal to his base by alienating Another segment of the population. But I also think that he's kind of like a bull in a china shop, you know, and at the same time that he's causing destruction, he's also doing something good over here. Um, A lot of times he doesn't get the press for the good stuff that he does. Are either of you changed as people? For having had this experience? Mm Mm-hmm. I am. I think I've got a better attitude. Um... I've always approached everything with an open mind. And a lot of my friends are like Trump supporters. Like I've always tried to see the other side. So in the sense of, you know, drastic change, I don't think so. But, you know, I'm really happy with the outcome of everything. Do you see Christians differently now? I never saw them negatively. Okay. I mean, you know, I'm growing up in this country, so most of my friends are... So you just say, oh man, all those Christians, they're all just full of hate speech and judgment and hypocrisy. uh, That has nothing to do with their religion. That has to do with their own ideology, the way they see things. Their experiences shape that. Their religion doesn't shape anything like that. Malia? Over time, I feel like we have gotten to know each other. And I feel like we have a ton more in common than we don't. While we may have disagreed in the beginning, we got closer to common ground when, through our discussions, and that's what I liked. Is there something that you think could be replicated about what we've done here? How do we reach the community and change the community? It's like a drop of ink in, in, in a glass mm-hmm. of water, and it's brightest in the center where we're at, but it's going to go out, and you're going to meet other people, and you're going to flash back on something we talked about or something, mm-hmm. and we're going to, and me too. I'm going to be a little more open-minded. 
mm-hmm. towards f- the ladies that wear the hijabs and and you know men that look like they might be from the Middle East. Mm-hmm. You know, it won't be my first instinct of uh, you know. Uh, it, it's going to be more. You're like, sort of you clutching know. your pearls there. Yes. <laughs> you know, this is kind of what the mosque here is doing already. Where they're reaching out to the community. It's not just this mosque. I mean. Right now is such a crucial time for our community that we really need to take back our religion. And that's the focus of the sermon today. Like, we need to reclaim everything. And that has been hijacked by people who the Prophet, peace be upon him, warned us about. That he told us that these people are going to come. They don't represent our religion at all. You need to fight them. That was his order. But these people believe you know, they can take this from us. And they won't because we far outweigh them. Already they're in retreat everywhere in Syria and Iraq. And it's the Muslims that have risen up to fight these people. It's not, you know, Europe. It's not NATO. It's Muslims themselves that are saying, no, like, we believe in the moderate form of our religion. And the Prophet, peace be upon himself, said Islam is the middle path. There are no extremes. We're middle of the road. And that's been a theme in Breaking Bread. Whether it's religion, climate change, or service to country, our guests have been happy to stand together on middle ground when they can find it. As the conversation at the mosque wound down and the pizza was mostly eaten, Annette had a quick question for Malia. Is the whole outfit called a hijab or just the the scarf? Technically, it's the whole thing. It's the whole thing because hijab is supposed to represent modesty in what you wear and Really, not just in what you wear and how you behave and how you act, I think. So it's actually goes beyond just the ex- what's physically on you. But uh, we call the headscarf a hijab also. Okay. How long does it take you in the morning? And, and how is that ritual for you? I put it on in the car while I'm driving. <laughs> um, so it doesn't take me very long. It takes me like, I don't know. There's an underscarf that I put on first. That's just to make sure my hair sort of stays flat. Otherwise, they all come out because they're kind of short in the front. And, and the, the next prayer is starting, by the way. Yes. And then, so I'll do that at one light. Then I'll wait till the next light and I'll wrap it up. I want to thank you for being with us, <laughs> um, for the long drive you've done, for the incredible generosity with your time. Thank you. I've enjoyed myself. Thank you, Annette, for coming all the way yeah, out. Thank here you for and inviting stuff. me. Yeah, thank you so and I much. Hope there's a good I hate Denver for you traffic, so I faced a couple of fears today to get here. <laughs> we should definitely keep in touch after yeah, all yeah. this. I think sure. so. Yeah. I think so. I would love to do that. I got both your phone numbers now. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Annette Gonzalez of Pueblo, along with Medicon of Aurora and his wife, Malia Nawaz. We visited a mosque in North Glen together, part of our series Breaking Bread. It's our experiment to see if Coloradans with very different politics and backgrounds can find common ground. And you can listen to Medi's church visit at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado has a higher percentage of women in its legislature than most other states. And KUNC's Benta Birkeland thought that might make it something of a beacon as she reported on the Me Too sexual harassment campaign. But over about the last 10 days, she has broken stories that paint a very different picture of the capital of unwanted overtures and a culture that doesn't encourage speaking up. And Benta, welcome to the program. Happy to be here. 
Your initial story focused on Democratic State Representative Steve Lebsock, who is also running for treasurer. You report that nine women, including a fellow lawmaker, Faith Winter, say Lebsock harassed, intimidated, or made unwanted sexual advances against them. And your reporting has since turned up allegations against several other lawmakers. Uh, Tell us more how you got onto this story in the first place. As you mentioned, there's such a national movement right now, the the Me Too social media campaign stemming from the Harvey Weinstein story in the New York Times and the New Yorker. And I was reading some accounts about what was happening in other state houses, for instance, Florida and Illinois, and just kind of thought, you know, I should really do something about Colorado. And we do, we tie virtually with a couple other states for the highest percentage of female lawmakers. As you mentioned, it's about 40%. We've been in that position for several years. We also have more female lobbyists than male lobbyists. So I was kind of thinking, you know, I bet we're doing it pretty well here. And there's probably a few people that I could name on a list that would jump to mind that I wouldn't be surprised if something happened. But, you know, I felt like it was going to be potentially a pretty positive story and just started asking around and got what we got. Um, All roads initially were were leading to Representative Lubsack. A lot of people had concerns with his behavior. And so they were pretty forthcoming about what was happening. And he has apologized to three women, uh, that fellow lawmaker we mentioned, a former lobbyist and a former aide. There have been calls for him to step down, and we may learn more about his political future at an announcement later this month. Um, But in other words, you expected that there might be some reports, but it sounds like you were surprised by just how much you heard about uh, the, the culture at the Capitol when it came to unwanted sexual advances. I was surprised. Um, I I think having more women in power and more women at the Capitol, people said, does make a difference. But there's a huge power dynamic happening. And you have elected officials, you have lobbyists who want things from them. And then you also have the aides and interns. A lot of times those people are 18 to 22. They may just be unpaid. They may be getting school credit. And there's a huge power dynamic there with the sitting member of the legislature. So that's one of the the concerns. And then also a lawmaker isn't like someone in the private sector. They can't just get fired. You know, you could vote them out of office. The legislature can do that as a legislative body, but that would be a very public process. And lawmakers would have to know why they would be voting on that. So there's not confidentiality there. If you had a concern with a lawmaker for them to really face consequences, it would have to be public in the media or public in a way that other lawmakers would chastise them and call for their resignation. So I think that promotes a culture of silence as well, because this isn't something people want to talk about. And with that power dynamic, a lot of people are just beginning their political careers or they're lobbyists and they have clients and it's based on their close relationships to people in power and having access. And if they're out there talking about this, they worry it'll hurt their reputation and and hurt their business and their livelihood. So there's a lot at stake for a lot of people. And we have a citizen legislature that meets for an intense intense four-month period, and uh, these folks have other jobs, uh, as you say there. Um, So do you think the Me Too movement has changed the culture of, of silence? Do you think that there is just more comfort speaking up, or are you still running into people who do not want to come forward publicly? 
I, I think the answer to that is both. I, I think that National Movement gave me a reason to do this story and I got as much as I did, but um, I can't report 90% of the things I now know because huh. people aren't public and it's not corroborated. And even, you know, so that's, you know, as a reporter, you want to shine light. And so you learn a lot that you can't shine light on. And that's just something you have to accept. I don't usually do this type of investigative reporting where you're going back to sources again and again and trying to get more information. And it's it's not something most people want to talk about, even with the Me Too movement, because like I said, there's a, a lot at stake for people's careers and personal lives. So I, I think it's helped. I don't know if I'd asked these questions eight months ago, if I would have even gotten this far. But it's definitely not an open environment. Your reporting uh, then turned up claims of sexual harassment involving Senators Randy Baumgartner and Jack Tate, both Republicans, and I'll say that they deny any wrongdoing. But I, I, I do want to focus on corroboration. I mean, in general, how did you go about getting confirmation for the allegations uh, before you went to air with them? You know, just just a lot of reporting, um, a lot of people that I talked to on background and I have been at the Capitol for a long time, so I do know the culture, and I, I'm there a lot. So um, I know these lawmakers as well. I mean, a lot of these people I work with personally, including the legislative leaders, they are my colleagues in a way. I see them during the legislative session on a daily basis and work with them. So the media is part of that social environment at the Capitol as well. Um, I think the national movement helps a little bit. It gave some people feeling that if there was ever a time they could possibly go public or even corroborate something on background, which is still very important to know how many people went to legislative leaders. That's not the full list, but they felt a little bit more protected at this moment in time that possibly they wouldn't be attacked for coming forward and they get support from other people. So in that sense, I think the national movement helped. And so in that way, you were able to get uh, confirmation from multiple people around an allegation? Yes. Okay. And the more reporting you do, it kind of builds on itself. And, um, you know, and sources have to know they can trust you when it's on background. That doesn't mean you can go to another source and say, hey, this person told me this. And, you know, you've got to really respect people's privacy in these situations. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Benta Berkland, who covers the state capitol for KUNC Public Radio, uh, about the news she's broken in the last 10 days or so related to allegations of sexual harassment at the state capitol. And uh, I want to say that the Aurora Sentinel and uh, Republican Representative Dave Williams have recently said that House Speaker Chrysanta Duran, so a leader in that chamber, should step down because of the Lebsock controversy in particular. Duran says she followed proper procedure with these complaints. And I'll say that one of the accusers, Faith Winter, agrees with that. But overall, has leadership in the House and the Senate... Democrat and Republican, have they fallen short in dealing with these issues, certainly before these things came to light uh, with the Me Too movement? I think that's something the public would have to decide. You know, I have heard talks in terms of reforming the system that there is a concern and it doesn't matter who's in leadership at the moment or which party. You know, Right now, our system, if it's a lawmaker that someone has a concern with, it will ultimately go through the leadership of that chamber. And so a lot of people feel like it should be more of an independent 
not politician person that would be making those decisions or that you'd be going to. Um, you could imagine a scenario someday where there's a very slim majority and what, let's say the lawmaker in question is in the, the, the biggest swing district in that chamber. Well, what's that legislative leader going to do? Not, you mean they, they have a duty to the potential victim, but at the same time, what if this seat impacts their party's power in the chamber, cool. their own speakership or Senate presidency? So, th- you know, I think there's some talk about moving it out of legislative control entirely. I don't know how far those discussions will go, but I've definitely heard that from a lot of people. And then also from aides and interns, the idea that could there be a way short of a formal complaint of getting your concerns addressed you're going to an objective person who could say anonymously to a, a sitting legislator, this behavior is concerning someone. Maybe give the, the person a chance to correct that behavior um, before you want to go the formal complaint route. Right now, I don't think the aides and interns would feel comfortable saying something to a lawmaker if they're 19 or 20 or something about, hey, knock that off or don't comment on this. They don't have the, the gravitas or, you know, they just wouldn't say that to someone. Again, speaking to the power dynamic under the dome, and I, I want to say that there is also talk of having annual training around proper uh, workplace behavior at the Capitol as well. Uh, Benta, I, wa- I want to pick up on something that you said at the beginning of the conversation, which is that as you w- waited into this story, you wouldn't have been surprised if maybe a couple of names had come up uh, related to to allegations of sexual harassment. You know, I think so many people look at the Harvey Weinstein situation and say this was the worst kept secret in in Hollywood to some extent. Uh, Do you think that's the same at the state capitol? Um, That it, it, it really was endemic to the culture and not being dealt with? I think that could be true, although that makes me a pretty bad reporter then because I didn't really know about Steve Lebsock. And by all counts, I guess he would have been the worst kept secret that everyone, you know, a lot of people had said, oh, I knew to stay away from him. And I knew that some people didn't like him, but he isn't someone I talked to a lot. So, you know, it it just kind of depends. And then also, you know, different people may treat people in a different category depending upon the power dynamic if it's an intern or an aide versus a reporter versus a powerful lobbyist who's a female so you know i don't think it's obvious to everyone and you know with certain legislators some people have good relationships with them and and someone else might say i had a problematic situation with that person so you know lebsock i haven't really seen anyone coming out to defend him for sure And I suppose this speaks as well to transparency. So I'd like to wrap up just by asking how transparent the reporting process is. Uh, I know that there have been some obstacles to just getting this information about previous complaints filed. Yeah, it's not subject to open records requests, so we can't even find out. And I'm not even saying the people, but we can't even find out in 20 years there's been 10 formal complaints. That's not even available. So not only do you not know when complaints have been filed, you know, there's no accountability to see if anything's been addressed other than someone talking to a lawmaker or someone saying, oh, just try to stay away from that person. You know, in terms of the follow up of what happens if there's a concern, that's that's not available information either. And I can definitely understand protecting the privacy of possible victims, but there's no way to track even how frequent complaints are. 
And then you said at the beginning, you can't fire a lawmaker. It's really a question of the voters in his or her district. But uh, what would be the range of punishment if someone through an administrative process is found guilty of sexual harassment? Let's leave it there. Yeah, I mean, it could be, you know, if they're a committee chair, stripping them of the committee chair. Under state law, every lawmaker has to serve on one committee. So if they served on multiple committees, you could take away committee assignments. But I think for people stepping forward, that doesn't feel like a lot, especially if the person didn't resign and you still had to work with them and they would know it's you who filed a complaint. So I had talked to the governor fairly recently, and he feels like any sexual harassment policy does need to have teeth, does need to have consequences. Like if, if you do this, this happens to you. So we'll see where that potentially leads. I think there'll be a, a lot of moving parts and things that the legislative leaders and the governor will have to work out when it comes to any new policy. Will this become a standard part of political reporting from now on, where along with discovering where a candidate stands on, you know, gun control or something, you'll need to report on their relationships with co-workers and others around them? I mean, I think it could be if if you're doing a thorough job. Certainly, if there's been a problem in the past, that would be a part of your reporting. But I think just in general, when you're covering political races and candidates, you do want to try to get a full picture of a person and how they are with colleagues. So whether or not that means someone's going to come forward, it's hard to say. But I think having really good working relationships with people who report to you and people who you do have power over is going to speak highly for any candidate. And I think it's what a lot of people in Colorado do expect of their legislators. That is reporter Benta Berkland. She covers Colorado's legislature for KUNC, and she has broken stories about sexual harassment allegations at the Colorado Capitol. Graduate students in Colorado face a hefty tax increase under the tax plan the U.S. House passed last week. Thousands of students with loans would lose their tax deductions, and teachers could no longer deduct classroom supplies. Proponents say these steps are needed to simplify a Byzantine tax code. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine brings us a roundup. Graduate student Jamie Kurtz isn't stressed about her research, coursework, or grading. Right now, it's tax policy that has her worried. Even if you minus the basic personal amount, which... Kurtz is a Ph.D. candidate at the University of Colorado. She trades her research and teaching efforts for a small stipend, about $20,000 a year, and a waiver of her yearly tuition. That's about $34,000. Under the current law, only her stipend is taxed. Under the reform plan, that $34,000 in forgiven tuition would be considered income. Instead of just being taxed on the $20,000, I'll be taxed on the $50,000. That drastically raises her taxes. By 300%. Her first reaction? Panic. Then? So I actually went through line by line of the proposal as well as the existing tax code. The tax hike would knock down her yearly take-home pay to about $13,000 a year. I asked if she could live on that. Well, that's uh, at best $1,000 a month. Many graduate students legally can't work beyond their 20-hour-a-week teaching and research positions. Graduate students teach many university courses and labs, and they do most of the grading. We're really that front line for students often. If they have trouble in class, we're the ones for them to contact, to ask about information, or or to go over tests. I can't count the number of hours I've spent one-on-one with students 
going through their essays line by line with them, giving them comment, feedback. An estimated 700 graduate students at the Colorado School of Mines would be affected by the bill, nearly 2,000 at Colorado State University and 3,000 at CU Boulder. University of Colorado spokesman Ken McConnellog is also worried that students would lose their deduction for interest paid on student loans. But a larger worry is that the graduate student tax hike will discourage people from getting advanced degrees. That can affect the economy. These are the students, our knowledge-based economy needs to grow the economy, you know, particularly in STEM fields. Colorado universities have been lobbying the state's congressional delegation on other issues in the bill. The House bill decreases the charitable giving tax credit. And so the result of this is a loss of money that typically will go for financial aid for students that our donors give for endowments or scholarship funds or things like that. The House bill also repeals a tax exemption for a type of bond. McConnellog says the university saved $60 million in borrowing using that. Also under the House tax plan, teachers, principals, and counselors could no longer deduct up to $250 for class supplies they buy for their students. Hans Mortimer unloads a shopping cart full of school supplies at a discount warehouse. Other teachers told Mortimer, who's still getting his credentials, what to look for. You should decorate your classroom. You need to provide everything for them. Pencils, pens, filter paper, curriculum, everything. Decorations are important because his classroom has no windows. He's already spent more than $200. Last week, he slept three hours a night getting everything ready. He wants his students to feel comfortable and succeed. On the possible loss of the deduction... It's really disappointing that at the end of the year I might not be able to take some deductions or get a little bit of credit for that as just kind of like a nice, hey, put your feet up. You worked really, really hard all year long. Simplifying the tax code is a goal of the reform for many who support it. Linda Gorman with the free market think tank The Independence Institute doesn't think teachers should have to buy their own classroom supplies. She says school budgets should take care of that and adds deductions are unfair. If I'm a teacher in the 10% bracket and I spend $250, then I get a lot less benefit from my spending than if I'm in the 50% bracket and I spend $250. And that's just not fair. Gorman says specific exemptions can increase complexity and often make the tax code unfair. It costs huge amounts of effort and time and resources. And the more deductions you have, the more complex the system is and the longer the forms get. Other provisions of the House bill would make it easier for some students to go to K-12 private schools using funds from their 529 college savings plans. But there are still big fights ahead. The Senate version of the bill is still in the works and doesn't contain many of the provisions graduate students like Jamie Kurtz are losing sleep over. Jenny Brandine, Colorado Public Radio News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And uh, poet Mark Todd, are you there on the line with us from Gunnison? I am, Ryan. Hello. Hello. This is Mark Todd. He's just won a Lifetime Achievement Award for his contribution to Colorado's literary scene. And uh, the American West appears a lot in his poetry. So do memories of his childhood growing up in the mortuary business. And Mark, right off the bat, let's have you read Cattle Time for us. Okay, sure. On cattle time. The drive toward town feels harried, but of course, this is still rural Colorado. 
and I slow the car, now a cautious, driven wedge into the herd of cattle that claims the road that readjusts the schedules of spring. That is from your very first collection, uh, quite a simple poem, and yet it describes something I think many city dwellers may have never experienced. Tell yeah, us, just, they, they just need to get out of town. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us more about cattle time, will you? Sure. Yeah, I actually, of course, uh, uh, I teach in uh, Gunnison, Colorado, but I live about 25 miles uh, southeast of there in uh, uh, Swatch County, and, and I live in a, in a, a uh, ranching community, so getting to work every day, uh, uh, normally you take 25 uh, miles and it's 25 minutes, but some days 25 miles is, is more like a commute through Denver. <laughs> and that's because of the livestock? Yeah, right. They take over the roads. They'll move cattle from one pasture to another. And uh, you have about, oh, a half mile uh, notice. They'll put up the alert. They'll put up a sign. And uh, suddenly you come up on and there's this big black mass ahead of you and cowboys on horses. And uh, you're expected to either follow behind or kind of work your way through the herd slowly uh, to get to the other side so you can get on to your destination. Uh, you describe this as being like a wedge into the herd. I love that. Right. <laughs> That's what it feels like. You're, you're driving along, and if you're in a, a little commuter car like I have, you're driving along, and you look out the window, and you're looking eye-level at the cattle, and they're looking back at you saying, what are you doing? What are you, what are you doing in my way? <laughs> <laughs> On their commute, exactly. Uh, On their commute. That's right. A, another poem from the same collection, Wire Song, is The Birthday. Uh, it's set in the West, but I think it's quite universal, and so let me have you read that. For us. Sure, sure. The birthday. A twenty-two was all it took, and a rifle caressed by cr- proud hands once ranch rough, hands that now wore the brittle of decay, trapped most days by bedclothes and pressed hard against smooth walls. But this day, sitting in his son's pickup, promised for rabbit hunting, he sat alone. And while his son fetched the old man's hat inside, no one heard the pop or saw him slump, a burgundy trickle seeping from his chin, painting the hound's tooth checkers on his shirt. Ah, and so this poem opens with a rifle and appears to contain a suicide. I understand this was inspired by your family's mortuary business. Yeah, yeah, it felt like a good fit for this uh, for this book simply because it was about the ranch lifestyle, and I and I grew up in a, in a rural uh, uh, town in in New Mexico, and it seemed to fit with the with the uh, with the theme of the book. But uh, yeah, it was uh, something that uh, our family mortuary business uh, that I that I helped my dad go on on the call to the nursing home, and it just had always really really uh, sh- kind of shook me. <laughs> what do you remember about the circumstances? Uh, you know, uh, not not a whole lot. You know, I was actually a teenager when this happened, uh, but it, but I remember my dad saying that it was an old ranching community and that uh, this man had spent his whole life, you know, out uh, uh, out working cattle and mending fences. And uh, finally, when he got old enough, he couldn't ride a horse. They took his guns away from him, and he was confined to a nursing home. And so uh, he just he decided that he he was done with that. Uh, with where he was, where, where he'd been confined, and, and, and kind of plotted and figured out a way to uh, to take care of it, and had clearly planned it. He'd left his hat in his room, and so he, he knew his son would have to go back and get it. And he he was an op- he took the opportunity to uh, to end things his own way. Huh. 
We are speaking with poet Mark Todd, and I want to say that you teach English at Western State Colorado University in Gunnison, and you've been wrangling poets and poetry here in Colorado for decades <laughs> at uh, poetry slams, cowboy poetry readings. Yeah. I, I understand it was an event at a local rodeo that helped you see the significance in particular of like performance poetry. Uh, tell me about that. Oh. Yeah, it sure was. Uh, I was used to uh, reading poetry and, and having crowd crowds of two to ten people, and I happened to to attend an event that was going on at the local rodeo, and, w- and went out to there, and they were in the grandstands, and my gosh, they had a hundred, hundred and fifty people just rapt attention, and I thought, wow, uh, why do they draw such bigger crowds? And uh, and uh, I uh, decided to get in involved and started writing, trying to write cowboy poetry poems. Of course, then I had to catch up with them. I had to learn about prosody, rhyme, and meter, which I didn't get in my formal education. And I came to realize that uh, what the crowds really liked, it, that you know, that primal part of your brain that counts, that that counts beats. It's the same thing we respond to in music. Hmm. That in poetry, you do the uh, crowds respond the same way. And of course, cowboy poetry tends to be, you know, the romance of the West and and, and often comical. So those elements uh, just so impressed me that the but the performance is what drew it out. It wasn't just the reading; it was the performance. So I got in, I decided to get involved. And it has so happened the day, uh, the, the year after I decided to get involved, the, the local organizer moved out of town, and they said, well, I guess that's that. And I said, wait, wait, no, let me, let me see if I can keep this thing going. And then I became the, I staged it and became the organizer for the next 15 years. <laughs> oh, wow. And they really did have a chance to, to see the difference and, and came to really love the, uh, the, the kind of writing, but most particularly because of, the, of, the, of its vibrancy. It, I mean, poetry was alive and well to these people who, who probably didn't even read books but would come to a, po- a cowboy poetry reading. <laughs> Do you see poetry in things that aren't labeled poems or from people who aren't labeled poets? Uh, well, I think, yeah, let me answer this in a, a kind of sideways, you don't mind, Ryan. I think that uh, anytime you have a passion for the word or you become uh, uh, enamored of the, of the, of the magic of, of, and the music of, of words, uh, you are a wordsmith. You are a, you are a poet. You're a micromanager of words. And I, I see it in uh, log lines. I see it in billboards. I certainly see it in jingles. You hear it in, certainly, it's alive and well in rap and hip-hop, uh, which also is heavily, heavily works with those, that prosodic, those prosodic elements. But I think that uh, uh, any kind of eloquence, uh, we drop into a poetic language, and we all kind of just become spellbound when that happens. Huh. I like that you see it in billboards. I mostly see them as, as in the way of a good view. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know, it's, that, it's those catchy words. It's like the one sheets in movie posters uh, uh, where you're trying to get somebody's attention. And if you can capture somebody's uh, attention and imagination with just a few words, you are a micro word manager. And that's what poetry is all about. Well, thanks so much for talking with us and congratulations. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks for, thanks for having me on. That is poet Mark Todd. He teaches writing at Western State Colorado University in Gunnison. And he's received the Karen Chamberlain Award for Lifetime Achievement in Poetry in Colorado. We've posted more of his work at CPR.org.
There's a radio station at the Holly Creek Retirement Community in Centennial, south of Denver, HCRK, and it's run by the seniors themselves. CPR's Vic Vela paid a visit. Now we're going to listen to Guy Mitchell and uh, singing the blues. This is what a typical Friday morning sounds like inside HCRK Studios at the Holly Creek Retirement Community during a program called Dick's Big Band Hour. Bob Stong has been a Holly Creek resident for seven years and DJs for the Big Band Hour. All of these are favorites that we remember in our age. I'm 91 years old, so I've been at most of this stuff during the time. The station was started four years ago by Holly Creek resident Dick Gustafson. He was once a radio DJ in Minturn, Colorado. Now Parkinson's disease has affected Gustafson's voice, and he doesn't talk too much on the air these days. But he still stays involved, queuing up old vinyl records and CDs. He had a lot of equipment and a passion for radio, and so asked, what do you think? Could we make this into a radio station? It was an empty office at the time. That's Jane Keller, the executive director of Holly Creek. She says the radio station's become something that provides meaning and purpose for the residents. I think about my grandparents when they were sitting in their kitchen. They had an AM radio right above the kitchen table, and we listened to it every single morning. And that's what the residents are doing. The current temperature is 34. It'll be partly cloudy, and it will go up to 49. We have one person celebrating a birthday today, Kay Murphy. Happy birthday, Kay. In addition to daily announcements, the station plays the music residents grew up on, and also recordings of famous entertainers of the era, like Red Skelton and Bob Hope. Bob, wait a minute, wait a minute, please don't go. Oh, but I'm Bob Hope, and you wanted Clark Gable. I know, but people get used to margarine instead of butter. (laughs) There's also an interview show that's very popular among the residents. Good morning, this is Wanderings. That's Priscilla Stenman. She's one of the hosts of Wanderings, where she interviews fellow Holly Creek residents who share their life stories. Today she's interviewing Carol Feruda, who's lived quite a life. It was during the war, Second World War, and, and we were taken to internment camps. And the last internment camp where we lived was in Colorado. So my family moved to Denver where there was a small Japanese community. The residents get a copy of their interview on a CD, which their families can cherish long after they're gone. Stenman says that's a big selling point for residents who may be hesitant to be interviewed. People say, I'm not that interesting. But, you know, they are. There is not a person here that doesn't have a story worth being heard. The radio station is kind of like a barber shop or an old neighborhood diner, a place where residents pop in and talk. Folks like Jack Kelly, a funny guy from Brooklyn who's wearing a rather dapper wool vest. You're about the 12th person today that's complimented, so I should wear it more often. Kelly says the radio station provides a community service to a lot of Holly Creek residents. Uh, It keeps some people company. It particularly helps people who are uh, impaired with their sight. See, we have a a TV station which announces events for the day, but these people have some difficulty with that. It's not just the listeners the station helps, it's the volunteers themselves. It helps keep them engaged at a time when they're dealing with the challenges of getting older. 
DJ Bob Stong, who we heard from earlier, lost his wife of 66 years this summer. Since my wife's gone, this keeps me busy. And uh, if you don't, you probably spend time in the bars, and this keeps me out of the bars. <laughs> Talking about his wife, Stong is a mix of funny and heartfelt, just like the station. You'll all remember this one. Here's Glenn Miller with Moonlight Serenade. These are their songs, their memories. With HCRK Radio, the community of Holly Creek has a way to keep their past alive by giving them a voice today. I'm Vic Vela, CPR News. And that's Colorado Matters for today. You can subscribe to the Colorado Matters podcast through your favorite podcast service, including iTunes. We are also on NPR One. You can follow me on Twitter at CPR Warner and on Facebook, we're CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner at Colorado Public Radio.